Look at Exodus 32, but first will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be together around it, even on a rainy day with a flooded theater and, and non-functioning air conditioning and, and all the things that are going on. God, thank you that we can be here and we can hear from you and we can enjoy you together. We can sing to you. I pray that you would come, Father, by your spirit and that you would help us to see Jesus and to love him this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. So in Exodus 32, we're going to see two great problems that we all share, and we're going to see two great needs that only God can meet. So our first great problem is that our love for God is fickle. Now why don't you look at Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So the last time these people were in focus, the last time the camera was on them, they were saying, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And then, you know, we follow Moses up the mountain, come back down, and they're demanding a golden calf. And they're, they're saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. They're saying, this is the Lord. They're saying, they're sacrificing to the calf. So what is going on? What is happening? Why have they exchanged God for this calf? And the answer is, because there was something they loved more than God. There was something that they wanted most of all. God wasn't their treasure. God was a means to an end. God, God had told them that he would, he would take them out of slavery. He would bring them to this good inheritance, this land for their own possession. And they wanted to get a move on. They didn't want to sit around a mountain waiting 40 days and nights for Moses to come down. They wanted, they wanted to go and get what they had coming to them. So they said, well, then we'll just make a God we can carry. And then we don't have to wait anymore. We'll just make a God we can carry and we'll be on our way. In a word, the people had become idolaters. They had an idol, a, a counterfeit god. And we tend to think of the calf as the idol. And in a way it was, like, they treated it like a god, they sacrificed to it, they, you know, they had a, a feast before it. But it wasn't really the deep idol of their heart. The deep idol of their heart was the comfort of the promised land. That's what they wanted. They would go with any god who would get them there. And so when God stood still, they said, we'll just make another God and we'll go get what we have coming to us. Their love for God was fickle, depending on whether God was giving them what they really wanted. So an idol is anything that displaces God as the great love of your heart, anything you love more than God. And it can be even a really good thing. But the problem is when it becomes more important to you than God. It's, it's what you long for. It's what you put your trust in. It's what you look for to give your life meaning and purpose. It's what you can't imagine living without. And we all have them. 
We all have something that comes before God in our heart. I mean, can you really say that you always love God with all your heart, that nothing ever comes first? Nobody can, right? We all have these idols. We're, like these Israelites, our love for God is fickle. Sometimes we're saying, God, I love you. I praise you. You're the most important thing to me. And then the next moment, we're off chasing promotion or sex or respect in the eyes of people we care about. We're so fickle. We're so quick to turn away from God. So we all have these idols, and how can we tell what they are? Well, this passage gives us kind of four clues, four questions we can ask to help us know what really has the love of our hearts. So this is where God's Word is kind of going to examine our hearts a little bit, and and I want you to to pay attention to this and really ask, what's true of me? What's going on in my heart? So the first question we can ask is, about what do you get impatient with God's timing? Remember, these, these Israelites, the reason they, they, the whole golden calf thing happened was because Moses delayed to come down the mountain. They wanted to get a move on. They wanted to get what they really loved. And, and we can be that way too. We can, there are things that, that we get impatient waiting for. We feel like God should have given us a long time ago, and he hasn't. So, so what is it for you? What makes you impatient with God? Is it you should be married by now? or you should have kids by now, or your kids should be sleeping through the night by now. You should have made partner by now. What is it you feel like, God hasn't given this to me, and it it makes it hard for me to trust him or love him? That might be an idol for you. Secondly, for what will you disobey God in order to have it? So these Israelites, they had just made this covenant with God. It hadn't been that long ago. And the second commandment of the ten says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. These people knew that making the golden calf was exactly what God told them not to do, but they were willing to disobey God because they thought it would get them what they really wanted, that if they had a God they could carry, they could just go and get the land. So, what is it for you? For what are you willing to disobey God in order to have it? Are you willing to cut corners, act unethically at work in order to stay on promotion track? Are you, are you willing to engage in gossip just to fit in and not seem weird? Are you willing to go beyond the bounds of what God has set for sexuality in order to keep a relationship from falling apart, in order to keep from distance from creeping in? Where are you willing to disobey what God has said in order to get something else? If you're willing to disobey God for it, then for you, it's an idol. Third, for what do you make greater sacrifices than for God's purposes? So these people, the, the gold for the calf came from their earrings, right? Now, now, where did a nation of slaves get earrings? They got all this gold as they were leaving Egypt. The Egyptians gave them these gifts to go on their way, and the reason why God provided for that was so they could build the tabernacle. The gold was for God's house. It was for God's dwelling. And instead, they took the gold and they they made it into an idol. They took the resources God gave to them for his purpose and they used it for something else. So as you think about where your time goes and where your money goes, as you think about what what you dream about saving for, what you tighten your belt for, is it God's purposes? Are you, are you saving up so you can be generous to those who need, who need a little assistance? Are you saving up so you can send the gospel to the ends of the earth? Or is your big saving project 
retirement? Is your big saving project vacations? What, what are you willing to sacrifice more for than what God has said he values? That could be an idol. And lastly, for what in your life can God become a means to an end? Remember, they just saw God as a means to getting this land that they wanted. They wanted a comfortable life, and if God would get there, great. If not, they can make a plan B. So for what, for what do you come to God in prayer, seeking that if he never gave it to you, you'd feel like, boy, that wasn't worth it at all? What, what are you coming to God to in order to get that's more important to you than him? It could be physical healing. It could be uh, a stable family life, a rescued marriage. None of those things is a bad thing, but when God just becomes the means to an end, then that has become an idol. Now, I know, I know this isn't comfortable to think about, right? This isn't fun to examine yourself, but it's so important because God is so much more worthy of our love and trust and praise and seeking than anything else in the world. God is good. He made palm trees and sunsets and babies to show us how good he is. And he's, he's holy. He's never sinned once in all eternity, even for a moment. He's almighty. He can do things with a word that we couldn't do as a collective humanity in a million years. Nobody is powerful like God. And he's loving. He's more loving than any human who's ever lived. He deserves our whole hearts. We were made for him. And when we, when we set other things in front of him, we say to God, you're good, uh, you're good, but you're not as good as sex. And you satisfy, but you don't satisfy as much as the approval of people around me. And, you know, you give meaning and purpose to my life, but, but not, like, not like my career gives meaning and purpose to my life. We say, God, you're okay, but this is what really matters. And we trade him in for something infinitely less. And this is our great first problem. Our love for God is fickle. Now, our second great problem, before we get to the light that I promised you, our second great problem is that God's love for us is jealous. And that might not sound like a bad thing until you see how it works out in the passage. So look at, look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So up on the mountain... God, God knows, he sees what's happening in the camp below, and his reaction is breathtaking. He says, these people, have, they've broken the covenant, they've turned from me, I'm going to wipe out the entire nation, and I'm going to start over with Moses. Maybe that will go better than these people that have all turned astray. So what explains this reaction from God? Or maybe, maybe this overreaction, right? Maybe God's just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, flying off the handle, What helps us understand? Well, to understand what's happening, we need to go back to the second commandment, which the people are breaking. God says, You shall not make for yourself the carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love 
to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God reacts the way that he does because his love for his people is jealous. They belong to him. Their hearts should be his alone. And this isn't, this isn't the kind of jealousy that like a teenage boy gets when he likes a girl, but she's dating someone else, and it really drives him crazy. It isn't, it isn't a jealousy of a, a boyfriend who feels panicky whenever his girlfriend laughs at somebody else's jokes. This is the jealousy of a husband who has been betrayed. God describes his relationship to his people in the Bible as a marriage. They've made a covenant. God has pledged himself entirely to his people. His people have pledged themselves entirely to him. He's going to have a relationship with them like, like with nobody else. It's a marriage. And so if, if God's relationship to his people is a marriage, then when they give their hearts to something else, it's, it's adultery. It's spiritual adultery. It's betrayal of their marriage. They're giving to someone else what belongs exclusively to their husband. They've broken the covenant. They've betrayed him. And betrayal always comes with a cost, right? If you, if you betray your employer, you might lose your job. If you betray a friendship, you might lose the friendship. If you betray your country, you might go to prison. But what happens if you betray God? The people already know. They, they heard these words from Moses' mouth. This is Exodus 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So when God says these people have worshipped an idol, I'm going to consume them, he's not flying off the handle. This is what justice means. When you, when you disregard the holy God who made the world and choose something else, this is the consequence. The consequence of breaking the covenant is death. And these are the parts of the Bible that make us a little squeamish, right? These are the parts of the Bible that you don't, you don't go to when you need your nugget of encouragement. Because you feel like, God, they've just, they've just gotten a little bit off the path. Like, they're still learning. So can't you cut them a break? God, can't you show a little grace to these people? I thought, I thought you were a loving God. And we think that because we haven't really wrestled with how much God's glory is worth, how good he is, how holy he is, how unlike everybody else he is, and how unjust it is, how, how terrible it is when we, when we trade him in for little things like money and power and comfort. God is loving. There's no one as loving as he is, and we're going to see that this morning, but God is also just, and he can't do anything, he, he can't do nothing when his glory is exchanged for idols. So idolatry must be punished and we've already seen that we're all idolaters. So we need help. We need help, and we can only receive it from God. But, but this, this is where, so we've, this, to this point, we've been kind of climbing in the dark. We've been seeing that we have idols in our heart that we can't get rid of. We've seen that, that God is angry with idols, that the penalty is death. But now, here is where the light begins to break in, and we see how God meets our needs. So our first need, our first great need, is a mediator like Moses but better. Take a look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven 
And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoke of bringing on his people. So, so Moses knew that what God was saying was just. Moses didn't, he didn't think that God was going, he was, he was unjust, unrighteous. He knew that they deserved to die, and yet Moses, even though he's safe, right? God said, I'm going to spare you, I'll start over with you. Moses isn't in danger, but he, he goes before the people and he pleads for them. He says, God, think of what the Egyptians will say, right? The, the Egyptians, just all these people go out, think of what they'll say if they thought you were this good God, and then the people came out in the wilderness and they just died at the mountain. They'll say that you're not a good God, that you, you intended evil against your people and you just destroyed them in the wilderness, And he says, God, remember your promise. You said to Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, you said that you would give them this land to their offspring. Are you you just going to let these people not make it to where you promised that they would go? And he wasn't wasn't telling God that he was being unjust. He wasn't saying, God, you're, you're in the wrong. He was pleading for mercy. And lo and behold, mercy is what God showed. He did relent. He said, I'm not going to consume the people. The people were protected from the punishment their idolatry deserved by a mediator, by by someone who didn't share their guilt and therefore could go before God, and someone who loved them enough to identify himself with them. So we're idolaters too. We we need someone to stand in our place. But but who? Moses, long dead, right? Who is going to stand for us? Listen to what Moses says later in this passage in verses 31 to 32. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. If there's, if there's no other way to forgive the people, punish me instead and let them go free. Who does that sound like? Who, who else said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Who else, who else offered himself in the place of sinners? One of the things we're trying to get done in this sermon series in Exodus is to show you how the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, points ahead to Jesus, to what God is going to do through his Son. And one of the ways that the Bible does this is by showing us these characters who give us glimpses of Jesus, glimpses of what Jesus will do, but who still fall short of Jesus' greatness. And that's what God is doing through Moses. He's giving us this picture, this glimpse of what Jesus will do far beyond what Moses was able to do. Because even, it was amazing what Moses did. I mean, he, he turned away God's anger from an entire nation. Amazing. But even Moses falls short of what Jesus did. How? Notice that even though God relented from just wiping out the nation, that not everybody in this passage gets off scot-free. People still die. Moses comes down from the mountain, and he sees what's going on, and he smashes the tablets of the covenant with the Ten Commandments as a way of saying, you guys have broken your relationship with God. And he confronts Aaron, and he says, Aaron, what were you doing? And Aaron says, I just put the gold in the fire, and, and the calf came out. I don't know how it got there. I mean, there's, there's comedy in the Old Testament. You don't see it that often. And but then, then God speaks to Moses, and he tells him that justice still needs to be done. And this is what, this is what God says, so how, what Moses says about what God told him. If you look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, 
for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. This is God's command, not Moses. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor, those who had worshipped the calf. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, that's still incredible mercy, right? Out of the hundreds of thousands of people in the nation, only 3,000 die. But 3,000 still die. They, they didn't all go free. Moses, he couldn't turn away the wrath from everyone. And, and look at verse 33. This is following where Moses offers his life for the peoples. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So Moses, he did offer his life for the peoples, but God didn't accept it. He said, whoever has sinned, I will blot out of my book. And then he sent a plague. And we don't know if people died from the plague or if they just got really sick, but either way, they still suffered for worshiping the idol. So, so Moses was faithful as a mediator, but he couldn't secure a full pardon. And that's because God doesn't want us to hope in Moses. He wants us to look beyond Moses to someone who could secure a full pardon. We need someone like Moses, but better. Someone who doesn't just turn away some of God's anger, but all of it. And not just for one nation, but for anyone, anywhere, at any time who would turn to him in faith. We need someone whose ministry isn't limited by his own death, but who lives forever to make intercession. We need someone whose perfect life God will actually accept in the place of sinners, to whom God doesn't say, no, they will bury their own sin, but to whom God says, I will accept your life for theirs. We need Jesus. We don't need Moses. We need Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he was the true and better Moses. He was offering his life in exchange for ours, pleading with God for our forgiveness. He was being blotted out of God's book so our names could be written in. That's why he came to die. And it's not as though God was somehow frustrated by that, like he was being thwarted. That's why God in his love sent Jesus to turn away his anger and to save us forever. So we we need a mediator like Moses, but better. And God has provided that in Jesus, but we need something more. So finally, our second great need, a changed heart. A changed heart. Jesus is our mediator. He's secured Full forgiveness. But forgiveness alone isn't what we need. We don't just need to be forgiven for having idols. We need to be changed on the inside so we don't go back to the idols, so we don't do it again and again. We need to be cleansed entirely. Now, God did forgive the people at Sinai, right? He, he, he made a new covenant with them. He led them into the promised land. He gave them their inheritance. They got the tabernacle. God lived there. He kept his promises. He renewed the relationship, but the forgiveness alone didn't change them. They still went back to their idols again and again. There's even a time later in the history of Israel where a king sets up a golden calf. Like, that should have set off some alarm bells, right? He sets up a golden calf, and the people worship the golden calf. Forgiveness alone didn't change them. The covenant that God made with his people 
what we call the Old Covenant, it could tell people how to love God, but it couldn't give them the power to do it. It couldn't actually make them love God. And that wasn't an oversight on God's part. That was part of how God was preparing everybody for Jesus. And you can see this even in the prophets of the Old Testament. So Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. God says, I'm going to do something for you that I've never done before. I'm not just going to give you a law. I'm going to write the law on your hearts so you can actually obey it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just going to forgive you for your, from your idols. I'm going to cleanse you from them entirely so they are gone, so you don't have to live in them anymore. I'll, I'll give you a living heart. I'll put my spirit within you so you can actually obey me and be my people. And so one of, one of the longings of God's people in the Old Testament is for this new covenant to come, that that can actually change them on the inside to love God. And on the night before Jesus died on the cross, at supper, he took a cup and he held it up and this is what he said. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying, when I go to the cross tomorrow, I'm not just going to forgive you. When I go to the cross tomorrow, I'm going to make it so that you can have new hearts, so that my spirit can be within you. I'm making the new covenant you've been waiting for, and I'm doing it through my death, through my blood. Jesus gives us what Moses never could. So in a nutshell, here's what God's good word has shown us this morning. Our greatest problem is heart idolatry. It's these things we love more than God. And our greatest need is for Jesus. All of us have put things ahead of God in our hearts. We've We've broken the first commandment, which is not have any other gods before him. And because we've broken that one, we've broken other ones. We've, we've lied, and we've gossiped, and we've stolen. We've kept for ourselves what we should give to other people. We've all given our hearts to idols, and we deserve God's punishment. But all who trust in Jesus, the true and better Moses, receive forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but new hearts. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus... You can trust in him and receive that new life this morning. And how should we, we who have already trusted in Jesus, how should we respond to God's word? How could these people in Exodus 32, how could they have avoided the whole golden calf incident in the first place? How could they have never fallen into idolatry? Because we don't want to fall back into it either, right? We know, everyone here who's a Christian knows, you can have a new heart and you still, even though you don't have to go back to your idols, you do because it's so comfortable and it feels so good. How can we avoid falling back into the trap? How could they have done it then? Well, they could have, they could have remembered the first words that God spoke to them on the mountain. God said, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. They could have remembered who God is, that he is the God who saved them from slavery. He's the God who set them free and gave them this amazing inheritance. And that because of how good he's been, no one deserves our love more than he does. And that's how we can remind ourselves as well. When, when we're tempted by the same old idols, we can remember, no, there's a good God who loves me. He gave his son so I could have life. He gave his son so that I could belong to him forever. I don't need this. I have him. I don't want any other gods besides him. I don't need any other gods besides him. No one can give me what he can. No one loves me the way he does. We can respond to God's love by putting away the little things that tempt us and by giving our hearts to him alone. So let's pray for his help. Father, please do forgive us. Forgive us for our idols, the things that we we make more important to us than you. And you know what they are.